Hey, Shai, how are you doing? I'm well, how are you? Oh, even better, I would say. Um, what I heard is uh, it's too cold in your country, right? <laughs> uh, by Israeli standards, it's cold. By, I guess, pretty much every other northern hemisphere country, it's, uh, it's uh, summer. My yeah. Canadian friends walk around in t-shirts all winter long here. So Yeah, but uh, how cold or warm is it now? Uh, 14 degrees Celsius. So And how warm I'm should freezing. it be? How warm uh, 20? Should it be? Anything okay. below 20 is cold here. Okay. For, for native. So you should debug that, right? The reason. <laughs> yeah, it's a uh, it's habit, I guess. So. Last time we started to talk about debugging and um and what what we did or what i tried to do is to remember you know what features visual studio code has and and you mentioned the intellij and we talk about uh method breakpoints which are basically simplistic so you just put you know something on the method and it stops i would say what you can do with it right is check parameters and uh, if you hover over parameters, you see what's going in and what's coming out, hopefully. So the, this is like... The main value of a method breakpoint is that you can break when the method exits. Because uh, the way method breakpoints work by, by default is that they, um, they have a method enter and method exit events in the... Uh, in the uh, integration for the debuggers in, in mm -hmm. uh, the JVM itself. And that is global. And the reason method breakpoints are typically slow in, uh, in the actual JVM is because it happens for all the methods based on a pattern and not a specific method. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard for the IDE to pinpoint the specific method and only get the events on that. So it's naturally mm -hmm. slow. What the ID does is it uh, simulates method breakpoints by putting a method enter, uh, making the method enter event essentially a line breakpoint and the same thing for the method exit. And essentially it sort of creates a simulation of method breakpoints and that way it's fast. So if you create a breakpoint in IntelliJ and you expand that to see the method breakpoint, you will see that it's uh, by default, it's checked that it's a simulated exception and not the regular Uh, method breakpoint. It doesn't actually map to a JVM event for method breakpoints. So what you are and saying is that, that, that that's in kind of they are setting detail. two line breakpoints, one at the beginning and one at the end, to yeah, to have both, exactly. right? Which is faster. Exactly. So exactly that's that's the reason they do that. Uh, there's having a method breakpoint is still very valuable for the exit functionality. So if you want to break exactly on the exit and say your return uh, call has lots of uh, entries or the method has, uh, you know, it's kind of bulky or the method has lots of different return entry uh, areas, statements in it, then it's really a hassle and sometimes impossible because you want the return code to occur first and only then hit the actual breakpoint. So Having that uh, a method breakpoint is actually more valuable there because then you can uh, grab the the uh, stop the the execution after the return physically occurred. Now that's still not as useful because you know you stop the execution and the method's already finished, so you're already returning. Uh, the main value there that I've used it for is in trace points where you can essentially use a method breakpoint any breakpoint to print details about um, the, the, the breakpoint where it's hit. Essentially, it's a log. And normally, you can't put a log in a method uh, after the method returned, you know? Mm -hmm. And with a method breakpoint with a return, you can do that. So mm -hmm. you can do sort of things like um, check for race conditions and things like that, like print when the method enters and print something else when the method exits. And you can see uh, ex the exact point where the method exits. And normally, if you do a system out println and the start and the, and the end, you it won't be correct because, first of all, the method might return in the middle. Uh, but more importantly, 
the return statement itself might include a method call inside it or something like that, some additional logic. And you want the second print, uh, print line to be after that code executed. And only method breakpoints can provide that capability. So that's pretty nice. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I use that to detect traces and stuff like that. But wouldn't be a line breakpoint at the very last statement in a method more useful? Because then you would see you know, the contents of the method as well, right? Not for that particular case. And in specifically, if, if you want to check that the last line and uh, don't care about the content of the return statement or uh, you know what it does there, then yeah, sure, that's great. But if you want to oh, let the method uh, execute completely, mm -hmm. then it matters. What well, what I meant is, you know, the align point at the return statement. This is what I meant. Because then I'm inside the method and I see, you know, the state, what happened before the return statement, right? When stepping over, yeah, the line, when, when you actually, your next uh, action is to step over, then mm -hmm. probably, yeah, then a line breakpoint is better. For the case of a trace point where you want to get a printout exactly when the method finished completely and not before that, mm -hmm. not, uh, not, not in that case, then method breakpoints are pretty much the only way to do that. It's also possible to use method breakpoints at scale. So, for instance, I can uh, put method breakpoints based on a pattern. And mm -hmm. so, for instance, if I want to see all the calls to methods uh, that uh, check uh, return uh, Boolean values, I can actually do that. I can place a method breakpoint on all of those cases and do a printout whenever an isX method is, is invoked mm -hmm. and essentially get that. So that isn't as useful. But there are some edge cases. For instance, if we have a polymorphic uh, structure, mm -hmm. and I want, I can uh, bind a, a method breakpoint to every one of the methods based on a naming convention of a class, and mm -hmm. that way I can sort of print out where each uh, a, a sort of debug log, a poor man's debug log. Uh, situation where I can actually see which methods are invoked in which polymorphic instance of a particular class mm -hmm. and do that based on uh, naming conventions only. So, for instance, if I have a driver sort of situation where the I know everyone derives from driver and usually names their class X uh, driver, something like that. So I can do uh, use a pattern to place a, a method breakpoint on every single one of those uh, classes that end with the word driver and print uh, whenever the method uh, initialize is invoked for each one of them and get a stack trace and everything. I can do all of those things without actually physically breaking. So even if I get lots of output there, it isn't a problem because I can then uh, uh, just review the output at my convenience because it's a printout. It's not, uh, mm -hmm. It doesn't stop at the breakpoint. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think the trace point is called log points in Visual Studio Code. Yeah. And the annoying thing in Visual points. Studio Code is uh, you have to put them one line later. Lost you there, lost you there for a second. Yeah, it, it is but, called log points in Visual Studio Code. Mm -hmm. And the annoying uh, part is that um, you have to put them one line later to catch it. So, you know, if you put the log point exactly in, in the one, case, yeah, in the case of, uh, uh, you mean in a return statement, it's not so no, much uh, instead of method. So if you do the log points, um, sometimes it, they can be expression, but the exp expression is available one line, line later, you know. It's not exactly in this line. <clears throat> so if you would like, yeah. you know, extract something, so you have to do it one line later. It's just, you have to know it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you need to, the, the exception, uh, the expression needs to be in scope in order for this to work properly. I think the way that Visual Studio Code shows it is a bit confusing. In IntelliJ, it's shown like a regular breakpoint, just with a different color. So you mm -hmm. see the correct line where it's at. Uh, Visual Studio Code is actually doing it relatively nicely because unlike with IntelliJ, lots of people don't even know the feature exists because it's so well hidden. It's more functional, but it isn't as accessible to developers. And VS Code actually did a really good job at exposing that particular feature and mm -hmm. bringing it to the forefront for developers. So it's really easy to notice. But uh, the problem is, uh, 
a drawback actually is that it's rendered as if it's an additional line of text and it isn't. It just shifts mm-hmm. the context a bit. So it looks a bit confusing that you don't have access to some fields that you supposedly should have access to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, uh, what you have to do, there's a curly brackets which are optional. You can put you know, the statement there and then you will find in a debug console the output. But yeah. uh, but it is hard to debug the log point actually because um, if, you, if you just uh, put something which is not available, I think it will print out you know just the the the, the variable, not the value. It's just you know the reference, and um, yeah, but also useful. And um, what's uh, the next thing, which is interesting, of course, are field watch points, right? Yeah. So with field watch points, and this is something I recently gave a talk, and I assumed more people know it than they did because very few people raised their hands about. Actually, more people raised their hands saying that they weren't aware of field watch points before. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And technically, they're not breakpoints. You put them on. You put a breakpoint on a field. It's technically a watchpoint, and the reason it's a watchpoint is because it breaks in a different location from the breakpoint itself. It breaks on access to a field or from on writing to a field. You can pick either or or both, mm-hmm. and that way you can essentially um, avoid getters and setters uh, to detect changes mm-hmm. to to a field. Uh, I'm not advocating that, by the way, but um, why not? You can I mean, essentially, I... Um, yeah. No, I mean, not in uh, the general uh, situation, you know, like Lombok and everything is fine, you know, and uh, having okay. good properties. I'm saying that we need encapsulation, not uh, <laughs> don't make fields public. That that's the uh, and obviously records are great. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, but we can get uh, inspect mutation to a field or read from a field, which is a very common thing where you get a sort of race condition where a field suddenly changes right after initialization and someone, uh, A, changed it, which you want to know who, or B, you want to know who read the value before it was changed. So with a field watch point, you can actually uh, get all of that, all of those details without um, uh, without a problem. Why it's called Watchpoint? Is it not supported by JVM internally? So this is like a polling mechanism which polls the state, or because no, that's not be... the reason. It's the because... reason is that mm-hmm. it, it stops in a, in a different location. A breakpoint stops at the breakpoint. So you put a breakpoint, and it stops there. A watchpoint stops in a different location. That means we're looking at the field, and then uh, the the physical will step over at a, a location of the code. So, for instance, if a field is defined in line nine of a class, uh, mm-hmm. later on a completely different class will stop at line two hundred because that line accessed the field. So you mm-hmm. end up with um, with the breakpoint in a different location from the watchpoint. Essentially, the the step over will continue in a different location. And that's why breakpoint doesn't make sense here. It doesn't stop on the field. It stops uh, in the access to it. So the field watchpoint is a kind of breakpoint factory or breakpoint builder, right? So it just yeah, uh, you're sort of watching it. Not notifier, yeah. notifier, right? So it uh, mm-hmm. uh, it says yeah. okay, if someone changes me, you will stop. So and 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 it causes exactly. a breakpoint at this location, which changes the state of the of the watchpoint. Yeah. Nice. We had already a chat about exception breakpoints, and we said it's uh, really hard to catch them because uh, uh, if you activate that, then you know all all kinds of exceptions are going to be to be visible. So it's less useful, you said, right? It's less useful unless you have the filter, which I think should be the default for every IDE, where you can define essentially that uh, exceptions that are caught in the Java classes or the Sun classes uh, don't stop the the process and the thing is lots of times people say oh i don't activate all exceptions you know that 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 specific feature but this sort of uh costs us because lots of times and this is something that happens to me a lot and i'm guessing it happens to lots of other people is that i run the project i don't don't look at the console because i'm doing other things and there's exceptions logged into the console and i don't notice them and then I just restart the application. I lose all the exceptions that were logged there. I assume everything was fine. And there were lots of printouts, but I didn't see them. So the thing is that if I, if I stopped at an exception breakpoint, I would have noticed it. You know, the mm-hmm. ID would just jump there and stop me. And that's why I think activating all exceptions is immensely useful. 
but it doesn't work in the default setting because it will essentially stop every time that you do pretty much anything in Java and uh, or in the JVM. Because the the Java, is, Java, Java, Java throws exception internally. That's the problem, right? Yeah, historically, uh, they stopped doing that in recent uh, versions of the JVM, but lots of the existing code relies on very old APIs, and these old APIs, for instance, number parsing, uh, just through an exception. There was no way to parse the number in Java back then uh, as part of the JDK without throwing an exception if the data was invalid. So if you're doing an HTTP connection, it would throw an exception for a uh, field which might be numeric and isn't or is missing. And you'd end up just having to catch that exception and deal with it. And the JDK does that internally. It catches the exception. And I understand the developers that did that. They didn't really have a choice. Mm -hmm. And they caught the exception. They handled it. But I don't care about that. I don't want to stop at those exceptions that are handled properly inside the Java or some packages. So there's a feature to filter out such exceptions inside uh, IntelliJ. So you can grab all exceptions, but and ignore the exceptions that are caught and handled in uh, the Java and Sun packages. And once mm -hmm. you do that, then everything works properly. And mm -hmm. you can just run the application. It will only stop in exceptions that actually matter. Mm -hmm. And that's really useful to have running all the time. Okay. You maybe wonder why, uh, uh, from where I get the agenda, and this is because I bought your book, you know, and uh, so um, and I'm looking at the breakpoint chapter, and we uh, talk about uh, a lot of that, but um, but uh, you you use different names, like for instance the uh, trace points. I called it the breakpoint last time, and uh, so now we're coming to trace points and suspend state. So trace points are like lock points, so we covered them. And what is suspend state? So uh, by default, when you have a breakpoint, what it does in IntelliJ is suspend all threads. In Visual Studio Code, by the way, it only suspends the current thread and uh, the as by default. And trace points and log points essentially do are breakpoints that don't suspend any thread. So you reach the breakpoint and you don't stop the execution. Okay. Now, when you don't stop, you can actually do something like print out. In IntelliJ, there are additional options besides printing out, like printing the stack trace and doing all sorts of other things like the, that over there. But uh, the suspend threads is uh, still a very valuable feature. So, for instance, uh, if you suspend all threads, then you can inspect all the different stack traces and make uh, and get some additional information about them. If you only suspend the current thread, then uh, the other threads are running. You can't really touch them. But you can also, as you debug, see all sorts of things still working. Like, for instance, you put something into an event queue that's supposed to occur asynchronously. You can actually see that running as you step over and not wait for, for it to actually occur. So there's advantages to both uh, approaches. And IntelliJ lets you toggle that to suspend uh, a one thread, all threads, or no threads. Interesting. So if you're in a team and uh, the developers are using different IDEs, they may, may get different results, right? You have to be careful with it. Yeah, that, that's always true with the debugger. When you have multiple threads, you'll always get, without being in a different team, yeah. you'd get it yourself when you're running. No, same uh, team, twice. different IDEs. But even you know, if you yeah. um, if you're yeah. default in IntelliJ, it suspends all threads, and uh, you have uh, Visual Studio mm -hmm. Code, and it suspends one thread, so it's very likely that you will get different results or at least different output. Yeah, the IDs have very different behaviors, not just there. Uh, things like evaluate expression. Uh, people lots of times think that evaluate expression is one of those things that uh, happens in the JVM, but it's really the IDE simulating that. And it does a pretty good job uh, of uh, simulating that, but it's it's uh, there's nuances uh, in the implementation there. Uh, you won't run into them normally. I know that in Lightrun we had a lot of complexities because we can't uh, simulate to the same level of an IDE, uh, mostly because of security and performance and things like that. But it's it's very challenging to implement something like that uh, in a debugger. Mm -hmm. um, have you ever played with JDB? 
Java debugger, you know, the command line uh, tool? So I've been programming since the first beta of mm-hmm. uh, Java and mm-hmm. uh, the first one that came on. And uh, the first time I touched JDB was when I had to prepare a presentation about uh, debugging uh, uh, on, on Docker and uh, on uh, Kubernetes uh, about a year ago. That was the first time I ever launched JDB. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, you know, um, people assume that because I'm such an operating system geek and a Unix geek and everything that I live in the command line and I do everything in VI and Emacs and everything. And I'm totally such uh, the opposite of that. I love GUI and I just, you know, I can't stand working with GDB and JDB. And uh, one of uh, my colleagues is uh, like uh, in his 20s and he's a GDB nut. And I don't get that. I'm like, give me a, a good GUI and I, I'm there. I, I mean, I, I tore my teeth on Sinclair and stuff like that where you didn't have an ID. I grew up without code completion, without Stack Overflow, without internet. And, you know, the fact that we have those things is such a blessing. And I, I don't get the young generation where, when they want to sort of suffer uh, with those sort of tools, uh, I, I'll, I'll never get that. What I remember as I started, I started with C and C++, and I think the debugger was GDB, right? GNU debugger. Yeah, yeah. I think this is for mm-hmm. C++, right? Am I? Yeah, yeah. This I, I have a section about GDB, which uh, I Not J, G, use right? for G. R- G, G, yeah, yeah GNU okay. debugger. Yeah, and, exactly. And uh, it's, I, I used it in the book for... Uh, explaining uh, RR, which is actually a pretty fantastic back-in-time uh, debugger solution. Unfortunately, you know, like lots of back-in-time solutions, uh, time travel debugging, sorry, uh, that's also correct. Um, it's, a, it's a tool that lets you debug after the fact. So those of you who aren't, you know, system programmers might not have heard about RR, because it's, uh, it's very niche uh, in the system area, but it's, it's a fantastic tool. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind it is that you run the application with RR. Just you do RR and then run the native application. Okay. And something like Mozilla and everything. Mozilla, by the way, built that project. And it essentially records the execution when of they build your it. Is it, is, it, is, is it new project or older? No, it isn't new. It's, uh, it's not that old, but it's, uh, I think, a few years back. Uh, and it records the execution of the application. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things that it does, it, it, it literally saves uh, the operations that you do. And then when you want to debug that, you take the output file that RR generated and launch it in GDB. And at Mm -hmm. that point, you can go back and forward in time and put a breakpoint in places where a breakpoint didn't exist and inspect the variables in that place. So Mm -hmm. instead, imagine a VCR sort of, uh, or a a video player uh, of Mm -hmm. the execution of your application where you can, where you've got a time uh, element that you can mm-hmm. drag it. Okay, at this point in the execution of the project, I was here, and I want to place a breakpoint on that method, and we'll stop at all the times where that method was hit during execution. You can go back and forth, mm-hmm. and now you can't change anything, obviously, because the execution already happened. But you can inspect a bug, and you can inspect it from all directions. Go back in time. Go forward in time and understand what triggered the bug. And imagine to debug something complex like a memory leak or, a, or corruption, because corruption, you know, it starts, a memory corruption starts at one point, but essentially manifests, manifests much, much later. So mm-hmm. you need to start going back all the time to find that memory corruption. So it's corrupted here, then you go back, and then you look, oh, it's still corrupted here, and you go back and, and, and so forth until you reach the actual cause. And this mm-hmm. is really hard with a regular debugger. With a regular debugger, you need to repro- uh, reproduce it and then reproduce it again and again and again and again, constantly move the breakpoint for- further and further back. And sometimes you might uh, run into a problem because when you do that, sometimes you didn't reproduce it correctly and you assume it was in the incorrect place. But with a tool like this, you can actually get a snapshot of a single execution and then trace it back. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, 
this is a fantastic tool. It has lots of drawbacks. There's lots of time travel debugging solutions that I reviewed there. Uh, I mentioned one in the last show, uh, the app map, I think. And uh, it's, it's a field that I think will revolutionize debugging at some point in the future because it changes pretty much everything we think about uh, when we look at debugging. I looked at some other tools uh, like Replay and stuff like that for front-end development. Uh, Most of these tools are better with smaller things and with uh, specific uh, limited uh, segments, but they give, and obviously there's the stream debugger in IntelliJ, that's also uh, an example of that. These are fantastic tools. And I think that when we're debugging things like uh, algorithms and things like that and uh, uh, trying to understand, actually get a a view of uh, the execution, they're fantastic tools. Mm -hmm. I um, take a look at your agenda of the book of the index and a table of context, TOC. And um, so the next section would be uh, rendering, which I can imagine lots of tips and no-show objects and uh, mutual renders and so forth. Then uh, interesting one, debugging annotations, where you're pointing to the uh, IntelliJ uh, debugging uh, de- um, annotations. Why is this relevant? So how they help us, the, uh, the annotations? So, so rendering and annotations are connected to one another. So rendering... Um, Essentially, the watch area, lots of times people look at that area and assume it's kind of like fixed. They don't really spend too much time trying to understand what's going on there. Uh, well, there's lots of complexities on how the IDE decides to print out the stuff that's in the watch area and how to display it. Uh, but eff- effectively, uh, at some point, if you have a custom object, it will just invoke two string because you know mm-hmm. it's got all sorts of logic to decide what to show. Eventually, mm-hmm. everything fails. The failsafe is called to string. Now, there's lots of problems with that. Uh, one of the examples I give them there is uh, the example of repository, which I assume Quarkus and similar solutions have a similar uh, abstraction for JPA, where mm-hmm. you can sort of have a crude uh, repository where you can store JPA entities, load them, etc. Mm-hmm. The problem is the repository doesn't have a proper to string method. And I get why, because, you know, uh, what can you print about a repository? You can only print, oh, this is a repository, and that's not really useful. Should, should we always write two-string methods? Now the question to you. Should every significant object has to have, you know, a two-string method just for the sake of debugging? Would be a best practice? No. Um, I think generally it's it's nice to have two-string. I don't think we necessarily need to write them all the time. And renderers are one of the great examples where you don't need to write them all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, for example, I'll give you a uh, counterexample. Let's say I write a two-string method and it's very inefficient. And then, as part of my debugging, I log that object. Now, I'm essentially paying the price of the expensive two-string method every time I print this object to the log. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty terrible. The solution uh, is to have the functionality of the two-string without paying the price of the two-string in production. And renderers let us do that. We can define a renderer for a specific object type. So, for instance, in in the book and uh, in my demos, I show how I take a JPA repository, which is uh, Spring Boot's essentially crude repository element, Mm -hmm. and I essentially invoke the count method on it, which essentially does a, a count SQL statement on the database to count the number of entries in a table. Now, in production, I don't want to do that. Obviously, I don't want every time that I look or print an element, I don't want to do an SQL statement of count on a table. But while I'm debugging, I don't care. You know, I can essentially do that. Mm -hmm. And that way I know exactly how many elements I have in the table and I can see that instantly in the watch area. Even better, I show how when you expand, how to mark this node as an expandable node, kind of like an array. And then I show how you can expand the node and see all the JPA entries, all the entity objects within the table. So you literally see in the watch area the number of elements in that specific table. You press mm-hmm. plus and you actually see all the entries in the table as entities. Mm-hmm. And this is obviously very inefficient. There is a trick to make it uh, more efficient by sort of clicking it to enable it. 
but mm -hmm. uh, this is a very powerful thing. Now, the thing is that you can do that, all of that through the IDE menus. You can essentially define uh, uh, renders which uh, expose that sort of information. But one of the nice things is that you can do it using annotations. And these annotations are only uh, read by the IDE. So in runtime, they have no overhead. But the nice thing is as a library creator, as a provider of a, of a module, you can essentially annotate your code to include uh, these sort of hints. So if you're building a library that has such uh, elements that are complex, you can essentially make them more debuggable to the end mm -hmm. user. And, and that's pretty neat. Uh, in my opinion. So the render, what we are talking about, is a feature of IntelliJ. So you can customize the views, how it looks like, right? It's it's a library that you can include. It's you know it's uh, belongs to IntelliJ technically, but it, it's it has no dependencies. It has no runtime element. It's just annotations, and uh, you just uh, add tag with a render annotation and give it essentially the strings that you would give in the IDE UI. And that way you can essentially get the same effect as a renderer and see uh, without the cost of uh, making a two-string that isn't efficient uh, and all sorts of other uh, expensive uh, costs of that time. But the IDE, by, but the IDE, IDE will have to, uh, to know about the annotation, right? Yeah, it knows about the annotation and IntelliJ knows about it, obviously. Yeah, of course. Uh, Third-party IDs don't know about it as far as I know and renderers don't exist in VS Code um, in any form, not uh, annotation or otherwise. Uh, it's it's uh, still a very powerful tool when you want to uh, essentially tie everything together to mm -hmm. uh, a, a simple uh, UI. And, you know, because viewing when we're stepping over the watch area is essentially the magic area. And if I, when I step over in some projects, I constantly need to start expanding uh, the object hierarchy to find that thing that I need. And that yeah. takes so much time and yeah. it's, it's distracting and you're missing the point where it actually changes. And, yeah. you know, this is so uh, for, for, that. I'm working right now with JSON a lot. And this is, uh, if you have a JSON P, this is a hierarchy, like a hash map of yeah. hash maps. So if I go to the IDE, you know, I have to click on one. So I see the one key, then keep another one uh, clicking, clicking. And this is why where I discover lock points because I do the lock point and then can say, okay, to string whatever I like. And I see, you know, the output there. Yeah. And um, so this lets you see it right in the IDE. But I have to say. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, instead of using lock points, I think it's also good a strategy to create beautiful locks, you know, meaningful yeah. locks. Yeah. Because uh, uh, because um, I do also some CLI stuff right now, command line interface with Java, and it's really nice to have nice locks. You know, without stack traces, now what's the tool is doing, and uh, and uh, may maybe you have you know debug uh, level or not I or or info level, and I think um, writing locks is is as complex i would say as writing good java doc right so for me so what i really hate it, in projects wherever everything more more so yeah enter I, method say, and exit yeah. method or even worse you know the question can we lock in an interceptor saying uh, uh, what is the added value of, of such such a thing we have debug you know i see the stack trace already why, why i need another interceptor logging the same so um i'm interested interesting that this on, on my side so, because this is yeah yeah i have a talk about that in a video as well about wow. uh, logging best practices. So, and there's also uh, about that in the book uh, about logging. Uh, so I'm a big advocate for logging. I'm against printing because printing is essentially um, ephemeral. It's something mm -hmm. that you do for debugging right now and then you accidentally forget it and commit it into the code. So mm -hmm. that's pretty bad. You, you, normally you'd want to use trace points instead of printing. Unless it's front-end, which is a special case. But mm -hmm. for logging, logging is a permanent thing. It's a, a permanent record sort of situation. And that's really important. The thing about logging that um, there's lots of nuances, but one of the big things is the cost. Uh, I've worked with lots of companies that use essentially logging for them is the only way they can actually trace something in production. And, you know, it's sort of precognitive debugging. You sort of need to know what you will debug ahead of time 
plan the log for that and sort of design that debugging experience for later on. And the thing is that you pay for that right now because the cost of log ingestion, the collecting of the logs and keeping them and keeping them indexed and everything, and uh, even without egress and those costs, is tremendous. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, Shai, uh, for instance, if you have in serverless project with Java, logging is a major cost factor, if yeah. not the, not the largest. So this is a widely um, yeah. um, underestimated, actually. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we estimated it was thirty percent of the total cloud costs are mm -hmm. logging costs, and that's a huge, huge expense. Uh, and lots of times, these logs are redundant stuff that the developer just added callously. Without actually giving it any thought, yeah, yeah. And, and and it's very, uh, you know, I, I see uh, companies spend so much time on things like code formatting. They all have a code for every company I went to had a code formatting guideline and standard, and very few had a logging standard, and mm -hmm. that's insane exactly. because I'm making a pull request for a project, and in that pull request. I have some logging or have no logging or anything. The person reviewing my pull request has no sort of standard to align with. So one reviewer will say, you have too many logs. You might be wasting time. Your log level is wrong. And another one will say, oh, uh, you don't have enough logs and overlog on the other direction. Mm -hmm. And there's no uniformity there. And because of that, the logs are also unreadable and unpleasant to read and expensive, as we said. So there needs to be a standard. I, I actually have that video there about that standard. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it sort of needs to be per company. And if you have a coding standards document, you should have a logging standards document. There's yeah. no question there. What also important is, uh, from my perspective, is to map exception types to log levels. Because this, this this was a mess, you know. Uh, in, in, uh, so there's like uh, developers that choose randomly the log levels with various kinds of exceptions. So I would say, this, okay, this you know the system exception should go to this log level, and more like you no know, warnings, mm -hmm. like violation errors, more like a warning level. This this is also important in my eyes. Uh, uh, this thing and the last one, if you log, I would I would like to see how you find the information. Because all the log aggregators, they need to you know. You have to. You, at the end of the day, you have to write a regex or something to find you know the information there. And uh, I think it would be good good practice at the beginning yeah, to write uh, to, to 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 have a rough idea about a pattern, which you can easily find later. Um, for instance, and and this would assume that I would actually write some tests against log files. Both of those are in my talk, by the way. So oh, I never saw your talk, but so very good. So if someone invites me to yeah. a conference, I can point to you. So I, I also can speak. We have you have the same, you know, yeah. the same ideas. Yeah, um, we will put your talk to the show notes. So um, I will also have to watch your talk. Um, you are dangerous, uh, you know, guest. I already bought your book. I will have to watch your talks, you know, and see what we have in common. And um, I will skip the process. Um, section because this time we are very organized and I would like you know to complete your book um, un under five hours this is my my, my personal goal and um, we can talk about uh, unit testing maybe we come later to testing but um, there's an interesting section section about um, ox um, uh, external tools and um, what you don't have I think you don't have B-Trace right? Do you have B-Trace? Uh, no. Uh, you see? I didn't talk about B-Trace there. I talked about, I intended to get there, but after S-Trace and D-Trace and everything, I kind of uh, uh, decided, you know, there's there's a point where you need to make a cut. And unfortunately, yeah. B-Trace got cut. How, how I know it? Uh, because D-Trace, of course, this will know the uh, Solaris, like I would say, killer, killer tool, right? I think no no one had the, mm -hmm. just Solaris. It was like a killer use case. Still, it's, uh, Still. it's available on Mac now. It's available on Windows. There is a version for Linux, but it's not by default. You need to sort of hack to get that. That's mostly because of licensing. Uh, on Mac, it's disabled by default. So you need to sort of enable it, the, disable their security mm -hmm. stuff. It's it's kind of, it's not as nice as it used to be. The, and what it is, is like AOP on operating system level, right? So it's like, it. Yeah. whatever happens internally, you, you can, yeah. And Btrace, I remember, why I know it, because there was the java.net website, and they announced that. 
Um, and uh, mm -hmm. it, for me, it was like incredible. So, okay, this is a B-trace, like D-trace for Java, and this was called B-trace. And I saw D-trace, mm -hmm. I remember B-trace, and I said, okay, but there is nothing about, at, at least something I can criticize on your book, you know, there is no B-trace, you see? That, that is so correct. You, I you really get only four, four dot yeah. nine stars, not five, because of this. But um, okay, so there's JSTAC and uh, and all of that. All the, yeah, uh, you you are explaining tools. dtrace, strace, a JMX term, then uh, JSTAC, JMAP, JINFO, and uh, and JXMAP, and GUI debuggers and Wireshark, which is mm -hmm. uh, incredible. Also had to use that once. And now about testing, maybe because uh, it is also interested about your opinion, because also a section uh, about testing there. And um, what I'm doing, I, I'm spending my time mostly either in front-end like CLI tools with Java or back-end like Quarkus, like Java E microprofile tools. And um, mm -hmm. how I test, um, so um, actually um, I started several polls on Twitter just to see what the uh, other people are doing. And um, and um, for this unit test, uh, I, I discovered myself doing something strange. So I start to write production code in unit test. And uh, if it works, sometimes I leave it, you know, for small <laughs> CLI tool, it is just a unit test. But uh, if it is more valuable, I migrate or move the code out to a production class, then reference the class from the unit test, and then write asserts. And this works, for me, it is very fast. Uh, it, it, I don't know whether it is the correct way to do it, but it works well. And this would be, I called it yesterday, you know, uh, ultra test driven because uh, I, have, I have just the unit test without yeah. the production class. And then th this works for me. And uh, But this is, I mean, this is a, like a small hack. It's, that doesn't mean anything. But what's more interesting is if I'm on the backend, I never start with unit tests. I write black box tests from the outside because I'm absolutely not interested, you know, to testing get a set as enums or exceptions to increase the code coverage. What I would really like to have is at the very beginning, you know, to call the system from outside and see whether, you know, the entire stack is working. So this is my approach. Is it also would be your advice or not? This is so, interesting. So I'm... I'm. I never really got into TDD. I tried lots of times, and I don't. Uh, I I can't think in that way usually. Mm -hmm. uh, it works for. It's what works great when you know the problem in advance. So if I do <laughs> yeah. exercises we never know. and things we, like we, that, but we, ne we never exactly. know, right? This, yeah. So I think lots of people in academia like TDD because they essentially they know the constraints of the environment, and so taking the tests and working with that is easy. It's also popular if you have an existing system, then you write the tests for the existing system and then create the new system based on the tests. And that sort of uh, provides a, a migration area. But uh, starting with tests for Java isn't as useful. It's useful for languages that are loose where, you, where the tests sort of work instead of a compiler and verify things like method signatures are correct and that, those sorts of things. About one of the problems I have with TDD and the core concepts, I, uh, conceptual problems, is that it overly emphasizes, this sort of goes towards your argument there, it overly emphasizes uh, unit testing mm -hmm. instead of integration testing, which is far mm -hmm. more important than unit testing. I mean, I love unit testing because unit testing runs quickly and I can sort of verify things. And I can, for when you want to write, uh, there's a process for debugging, which is in the second chapter. I'll talk about it a bit. It's uh, that in order to solve a bug, you need to first create a unit test, ideally unit test, to reproduce the bug and only then solve it. So mm -hmm. unit tests are really, really good for that to stop a regression from happening over again. They're good for tools like bit bi uh, Git Bisect, which is fantastic. So having a unit test, wonderful. But it doesn't really test deeply. And when I want to get coverage metrics, I ignore unit tests because I think coverage in unit tests is misleading. Uh, for me, uh, coverage only matters for integration tests because uh, uh, quality without the integration of all the pieces isn't quality. It's sort of expectation matching. And mm -hmm. I can have, I'm not here to build tests. I'm here to build a quality product. And unit tests sort of look nice. They don't actually deliver the type of quality that the application needs. So um, I still, I can't build 
a test usually. I can't fathom it before I have something running. So I don't do that, but I, but your approach sounds uh, good if, if you can do that, then uh, then kudos to you. Uh, yeah, we have I'm to do this. Uh, if, if we don't yeah. do this, what developers will do, they will start, you know, Postman or Curl and try to automate there and this get lost because it is not checked in usually. So either, um, and what, what, yeah, what I always doing for years, actually, Last week um, there was an internal talk, and I um, and I picked uh, I found my old J2E code. It was like ten or fifteen years old, and it was um, the same. So what I'm basically doing, I have two projects. One is called let's say um, debugging module, and the other one would be debugging dash st stands for system tests, and they're like black box tests. And the other module calls the first one. And uh, I did it, uh, you know, at the microservice, uh, as the microservice were popular back then, because only there you can assure that uh, the second module has no dependence on the first one. So if there is no deserialization going on, JSON, whatever, it has to work because it's like decoupling. This is the real world. And uh, this is my master. So we're starting with this. So this this should be, and this drives the other one. And um, and if something goes wrong, we re-execute the system test and, and see what happens. So it is not very popular, I would say, because what most people are doing, they're writing system tests in the same module. And the problem with that is, of course, um, you're always in the right version, right? So what I can do with two modules, I can actually go back a few, few versions and see whether, you know, the old version of system test works against the newest microservice, which is impossible in one module. So I would say this is, you know, the, the cost of a microservice. If you, you would like to have microservices, you have to, you know, to test from outside. And uh, your remark regarding code coverage, also absolutely my opinion. So we have to, you know, <laughs> be careful what we are talking or not careful. It's interesting that, that uh, you see this uh, um, also uh, similarly. And um, what uh, what we are doing, um, we try to run the server with code coverage, which which is simple. You can uh, it um, you can just use the um, how it's called from Eclipse the project, the um, code coverage project. What is called? Um, Ah. There's like an agent. There's an agent which you have. Um, there's an agent from. This is this Eclipse? Pro uh, uh, yeah, Jackaco. Exactly. Jackaco. This is Java yeah. code coverage. Jackaco. This is exactly the project. So we launch Quarkus or Tomcat or whatever with the Jackaco. And then if you launch the system test, you get code coverage of the project. And the cool story is. Um, you can then, you know, open NetBeans or IntelliJ or whatever, and you will see in source code, actually, because the, the, the file exec I think, can be read by the IDE, and you can see what was not tested. Now, the, now the interesting part is, right, if you call the system from outside and there are some leftovers with zero code coverage, it's mostly forgotten code. So what we do, we're misusing code coverage to ident identify that code, for instance. So, um, so uh, this is uh, a hack. And another thing, uh, I don't know, um, this was, uh, I, I actually last time you mentioned something with clusters, I think, and I wanted, you know, to say it, but it was too late. So um, there was a migration project and client asked us, you know, uh, how, how about the migration strategy, how to migrate? And I said, okay, this is old projects. I'm pretty sure not everything is used in production right now. So we should, you know, migrate whatever is used and what is not used, don't migrate it. So how to find it out? So what we did we started one node of the application server in code coverage mode in production. And we left it you know, for three months or whatever. And then we saw what was actually used. So through the code coverage, we saw, okay, this is parts which were never used. And, uh, and this was actually my argument that we can actually move on their parts of it. So this was also a nice hack. I, I wanted to mention this last time. I remember That's an interesting right uh, concept. I like that. Yeah, but uh, it only worked in cluster because you have to be careful with the memory. So I thought actually it would break, but it worked. Um, it was a Whitefly or WebLogic back then, but it works surprisingly well. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So uh, interesting fantastic. part. <laughs> nice hack. The next one was uh, stress tests. So if something you know works or doesn't work on backend, it is cannot be tested by unit tests. Uh, we launched, you yep. know, JMeter back then. Um, now, now it's popular again. So it was a quiet around JMeter, and now it was like a revival. And by the way, did you know that uh, who wrote JMeter? You know the guy? Uh, no, I don't. The same guy who, who created Kubernetes. Really? Yes. Yeah, he works for Microsoft. I think it's yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, um, uh, this is one of the of the of the Kubernetes committers. 
And okay, JMeter, a Swing app, you know, which which launched the test. I actually don't care about uh, about the results. What I would like to do is to generate massive load and see what the server does. And I also try, you know, now it's called how it's called fault fault injection or chaos monkey monkey. And back then there was no name for it. What we did, we misconfigured the application server on purpose and usually thread pools. You know, we for instance. Uh, JDBC connection pool with uh, not too uh, many of uh, um, not sufficient connections, for instance, like let's say two connections, we had thirty threads, and see what the application server is doing. So, do we will we get a you no know, timeout or uh, is something locked in the log files? Because if it happens in production, we know we know what to do, for instance, and um, and this was completely ignored. So in large companies, you know. Stress tests, system tests, completely ignored. And at least in Europe, everyone is after code coverage in unit tests, which is pointless. Because um, back to your repository um, uh, example, let's say I have a CRUD uh, uh, um, application, and um, if it, it is not unit testable because a CRUD application has zero complexity. What I can do, I can just you know say whether, I can check whether the database is working, but what's more interesting is from outside, with system tests, where they know the entire serialization, deserialization until the, the, the database. What I see in project instead, you know, JAXORS completely mock out. I got questions, can we mock out the entity manager? It's like, yeah, but if you mock out the entity manager, we know that there is nothing left. I mean, then, then you will test your own mock, right? So this is, yeah, um, yeah interesting. So um, now I have someone now, you can talk about testing. Usually if I mention something in project, it's a lot of trouble with that because, um, yeah, because of test room mostly. Uh-huh. Uh, your book is yeah. crazy. So you have you covered observability and monitoring. And um, what I want to ask you, why you started with Kubernetes? I mean, there's a lot of stuff. Why are you also describing Kubernetes in the book? As an example of so, distributed debugging? or Yeah. Uh, technically, I could have made it more generic and talk about observability in a, on orchestration in general. But debugging Kubernetes has uh, special uh, capabilities like a kubectl mm -hmm. debug, and the concept of ephemeral containers is essential when you want to sort of troubleshoot uh, at the scale of Kubernetes. Now, it's uh, I guess you know if you're using Lambda and everything, it's uh, kind of you're getting away from that a bit. But uh, when you're dealing uh, with Kubernetes, whether managed or unmanaged, uh, you still need to understand uh, what you can and can't do. And I essentially structured the book in sort of the stuff that you do in the client side. And mm -hmm. that includes the debugging tools that you can use like S-Trace and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then you can take some of these techniques and move them into Kubernetes. So I can run S-Trace on a Kubernetes uh, container in production. Mm -hmm. uh, ideally not in production though. But the thing is that if I do that... Um, I can create a problem if I just do an exec on a Kubernetes instance uh, and open a shell there. It's not mm -hmm. like uh, the days of old where we could just log into a server and start doing whatever we want. So I needed to explain those ideas. Uh, and Kubernetes is the de facto standard now. So I chose to go with that. Because mm -hmm. the book is targeted at developers and not at DevOps, I had to sort of explain Kubernetes and where it comes from. Because otherwise, I'd kind of lose a significant amount of the audience at that point. So, so yeah, that's right. why I went there to some degree. As an example, it's okay because this is a jump for me. It's okay. Why Kubernetes now? But um, yeah, um, maybe now forget about the book. But uh, you also work on startups, and uh, what I wonder. So my observation is uh, just your uh, just opinion. If you would start a st startup, something right? So let's say uh, I don't know what sell T-shirts. So. Um, and we go to the cloud. I would say Kubernetes would be the last thing I would use. It, it, it is totally. absolutely pointless. Because... Um, yeah, uh, I know, actually, uh, if you look at the book, you'll notice I include there in a footnote uh, when I mention uh, the need for Kubernetes, I, I provide a link to doyouneedkubernetes.com. And if you go to that website, it's a very sophisticated algorithm. It just says no. And, yeah, uh, exactly. Because we don't need Kubernetes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Big companies, for big companies, they don't need the scale. Lots of times people sell Kubernetes over the scale. That's for, unless you're Google or Amazon scale, you don't need that. 
The value of Kubernetes for larger companies is mostly in organization and the fact that the relation between the different services is really well defined. So an ops person can actually uh, manage everything using existing tools. And there's lots of the third party support for all sorts of capabilities in a managed environment and also uh, on, uh, on-prem and everything is completely, uh, is very flexible and very well defined. So I get when where organizations need that, uh, but for scale, you probably don't need Kubernetes and probably don't need no. microservices either. No, uh, and, and my observation is large organizations um, Architects are assuming that Kubernetes is cloud native, it's like standards, and uh, without Kubernetes, it's not portable or not even possible to go to the cloud. And for me, Kubernetes is uh, yeah. perfect for on-premise. I mean, what you can do you now, if you would like to have your private cloud, you have to pick something like Kubernetes. And my Mesos is almost no more available, so Kubernetes is the de facto standard. I would say I would use an Orencha or, or, or OpenShift, for instance, and uh, go with it. But in the cloud, if you deploy Kubernetes, you're deploying a cloud inside a cloud. So you have the double complexity and you have managed everything twice. So and uh, if I start, you know, to explain, you look on Asia, we have Azure Container Instance with one node. You don't, you well, don't, you, don't you do have cluster. the advantage of some flexibility. So you could potentially move some loads to on-premise. And, but the moment you yeah. standardize Kubernetes in the cloud... You give yourself, I, I know, you know, uh, vendor neutral has kind of uh, got lost uh, with the cloud. And yeah. we're kind of all deeply in uh, vendors. But the problem territory. with Kubernetes, Shai, is uh, but it's we, a have, bit, yeah. we have the helm charts mm-hmm. and all the stuff, you know, you have to build in, in order you know, to, to deploy, you know, yeah. hundreds of lines of YAML. But if you go, let's say, to, let's go the completely proprietary way, away and go to Asia, Asia container instances. So there's maybe like 30 lines of JSON. Uh, to deploy a Docker container, the same is true on Fargate, on AWS, or or, or Lightcell, or AppRunner. So I would say switching costs are relevant. The question is how much time it take, you know, to migrate from AWS, let's say, to Azure, regardless what you are using. I think what is more important that we use a kind of container if you would like to run in a container. And if you run in a function, it also doesn't matter because uh, my Quarkus runs happily on as Azure function or AWS Lambda, I don't care. So it's exactly the same, you know, bytecode. So there is no difference. So I would say this is. I just wanted to hear, you know, your uh, your <laughs> your opinion. But so seems so also to I be- I got burned a bit by past solutions in the past and the difficulty of debugging them and troubleshooting them. On the other hand, Kubernetes is so ridiculously complex that even if I have access to everything, it's still really hard to debug some of the ops-related problems there and all the interconnect uh, elements that exist there. So I'm not a huge fan of going with Kubernetes, and I think a lot of the excitement around it is really a resume-driven design, yeah. uh, where people kind of pick it based on, on that. On the other hand, you know, uh, I'm still, when I deploy my personal projects, I just open a VPS you know, I then go mm-hmm. to Lambda. It's like $5. You can get something better than Lambda uh, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. And uh, and without the risk, you know, I'm willing to pay a $5 instead of free for Amazon uh, because I know that the free on Amazon uh, might suddenly become $1,000 overnight. Yeah. But the $5 I pay for VPS will stay $5. It, will, it might crash, but it will stay $5. So I'm, I'm absolutely I'm with very you. much so- for control. I would say, uh, if you can, I will always deploy on-premise, my private cloud, right? So I have my own server, not even VPS. Also my, I have my own machine which, uh, with all my stuff. So it is even better. But if it's not possible for various reasons and you have to go to public clouds, then just use the cloud, you know, no, not fiddle with something which you had on-premise and try to replicate it in the cloud because it's get more and more expensive. Also on Kubernetes, um, because it costs with, uh, comes with additional costs, like uh, the you know the control plane costs. What I see is what companies tend to do is to deploy large clusters of Kubernetes, which are isolated internally, which is really um, harder to operate. So, and if you have you know proprietary solutions, they are smaller, so uh, it is it is easier to isolate. So I just wanted you know to hear your opinion as well, if I have it here the last time maybe <laughs> of our series. Um, anything so, we forgot to add regarding your book? Uh, 
Well, there's uh, a lot more there. You know, we just got to chapter <laughs> six, I think, out of 14. So, uh, yeah. Um, but but generally, yeah, there's lots of stuff there. I think the most important portion uh, that's maybe subtle is the theory that, that we kind of skipped. I mean, ignoring the stuff later on, we kind of skipped over the theory. Now, uh, I made theory as the second chapter instead of the first chapter mm-hmm. because I think, you know, starting with theory is sometimes a bit difficult for people. Okay, you know, I like that's the deal. having something sweet. With uh, a little break, maybe, you know, summer or autumn, I invite you and we will talk about theory. We have to, you know, to synchronize ourselves. <laughs> so uh, maybe I will read your book okay. then and uh, until then completely and, uh, and then, uh, you know, ask Send me notes to fix for the second edition. I already know. So it's a test for you. I know the mistakes that are there in the version that's out. So, so let's see if you track them. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Where people, where people can find you and buy your books and watch your uh, talks? Thebugagent.com. And mm-hmm. uh, youtube.com at debugagent mm-hmm. uh, has all the talks, including the one uh, about uh, the log uh, logging best practices and uh, lots of other talks like that. Uh, lots of videos in general. Mm-hmm. I'm on Mastodon as debugagent and Twitter as debugagent, and I'm on LinkedIn and everywhere. So, uh, so. find me wherever social networks. And even Facebook. on our AirHacks chat, uh, chat Discord as well, right? Yeah, we already checked. Yeah, although I don't log into Discord as much, you know, it's uh, it's too. From time to time, not our yeah. Discord. It's actually uh, there's from time to time a nice message, and uh, it is really nice to meet people because you can send them direct messages, you know. So it is uh, an, a nice, mm-hmm. quiet medium, I would say. So okay, great. Enjoy your winter and uh, the nice temperatures, and um, yeah, hear you next time about <laughs> with the theory. <laughs> yeah. So speak to you soon, hopefully.